All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue to look this morning on the praises of God's blessing in Christ, someone has called the book of Ephesians the profoundest, most profound book in existence. And the reason for that comment was because the reader, if you have read the book of Ephesians, the letter to Ephesus, the reader is conscious of entering into a very different sphere when you're reading the book of Ephesians. You're left, it's, it's like you leave the realm of controversy to that of worship. You leave the field, you leave the battlefield of the how, to the house of prayer. That there's no kind of thing going on like that in the book of Ephesians. It is one that focuses our attention on God himself and the worship his people ought to have for him. So that's where it brings us. And remember, praise for God is fueled and prompted by thinking about what God has done and getting your thoughts from the very Word of God. Not thinking thoughts that are outside the Word of God, but that come from the Word of God. And then when we do that, we're able to ascribe glory to God And we know because of who he is that he is due our praise. He is due that worthy praise that comes from his children. So today, we gather together to want to kind of pull back the layers of God's marvelous plan of salvation. And surely, we want to praise God because of the way in which He blesses us. And that's what we're looking at here, the way in which God blesses us. And who's the us? It's we who are saints, we who are faithful, we who are in Christ. We ought to praise God because we are called Christians and are blessed with manifold blessings and benefits because of our connection to Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 1 and verse number 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So Christians are placed in this sphere, this sphere of blessing, only because we are in union with in union with Jesus Christ. So if you're not in union with Jesus Christ, you will not uh, experience the blessings that come as a believer or even understand what that means. One person defined blessing in this way. To To endow one with the ability to succeed. Now, of course, in this case, because of what the Father bestows on us, He enables us as saints, as believers, to succeed in being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's where the success comes. 
He's conforming you to the image of Christ, and he's giving us success. That's what blessing is, giving you the success to get there, to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, there are blessings that we should enjoy as a result of being Christians. We should be rejoicing as a result of being Christians. And so we're still pursuing this first one, the blessings that come from the Father. Remember this passage, uh, passage of Scripture, these 14, these 12 verses, one long sentence in the Greek, has to do with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, their work in blessing us as believers. So we who are called by the gospel of grace are privileged characters. And how can I say that? Well, if you look again at verse number three of three and four of chapter one, because the Father has chosen us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in verse four, just as he has he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us for himself. And, you know, just mentioning the Father, it doesn't really matter at this point uh, what kind of father you had, whether you had a father, whether he was an absentee father, whether he was a bad father, because the word of God is a just thing. Our relationship to God the Father in a way that uh, the past things... Uh, cannot be brought into the present things because now God is going to show us what a real father is, what a real father does. And so the father here, of course, is the source of our election. And I've already mentioned a definition hammered out from an old creed of the church that says that God saves from corruption and damnation those whom he has chosen from the foundation of the world, not for any disposition, faith, or holiness that he foresaw in them, but of his mercy in Christ Jesus, his son, passing by all the rest, and of course, he, by his own free will, elects those who will be saved. That's a comforting doctrine. That doctrine proceeds out of the Holy Trinity before the foundation of the world in the council rooms of God before anything happened. So we have been chosen out of the world of mankind to be inheritors of great blessing. Do you see yourself like that? Do you see yourself as the richest person who's walking on the face of this earth because of what the Father has done for us? He is the source of our salvation, but he saves us or elects us for a purpose. God always does things with a purpose. And if you look at verse number four, he gives us that purpose. It says that we would be holy and blameless before him. Let me just stop there. When God the Father selected us and appropriated us unto himself, he did it for a purpose. That is before a single human being existed. He chose us in connection with Christ to be or 
that we should be something. And it's found in this passage, that we should be holy and that we should be blameless. That means that election and holiness and blamelessness go together. You cannot separate them. They're one thing. That means if you are elect, you will be holy and blameless in your life. They go together. See, holy, again, already we looked at this term because it was when we examined the term saint, right? Because it it basically means to be set apart, uh, to be separated from something for something. And of course, in this case, we are separated by God for God. He chooses us and he separates us unto himself. And of course, there's, we're set apart inwardly and we're set apart outwardly. We're set apart from the pollution of sin and from the guilt of sin by the blood of Christ. And of course, this is theologically positional and practical sanctification in one passage of Scripture. We're justified in Christ, positionally before Christ, right now perfect before Christ, but because we remain on this earth, in these bodies, in this world, Christ has given us his spirit to sanctify us, to make us like Christ, and so we are already holy. And of course, that holiness, he includes another word with it in verse number four, and it's the word that we have been, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And this world blameless could also be without blame or unblemished or blemishless. And of course, this term is an Old Testament term used of the absence of defects in sacrificial animals. If you remember back in the Old Testament that uh, they were not to use animals for sacrifices unto the Lord that were blemished. But it's also used of people to the way people would view the Lord. And there's one example I want to take you to, or one passage I want to take you to, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5, because here it's used, it's used of blemished children. In fact, it's used of children who are calling themselves worshipers of God, and yet by their acts, by their actions, by their behaviors they're actually canceling out who they say they follow. In fact, blemished children here, uh, it's, it's according to, in, in other words, they're acting in a perverse manner. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, it says they, act, they have acted corruptly toward him, that's towards the Lord. They, they are not his children. Now they think they are his children, but it says they are not his children. Why? Because, they, because of their defect. It says in New American Standard, their moom in the Hebrew, or their blemish. There's a blemish on them, and what is it? It says, but are a perverse and crooked generation. In other words, their behavior, even though they're calling the Lord, Lord, their behavior doesn't go with the name that they're calling, like we're talking about in Sunday school. In in other words, this is unacceptable living before God. And so God says that's the blemish on them. That's the, the character they have doesn't go along with what God says their character ought to be as God's people. 
So see, we are elected unto holiness and people who are without blame. Now, back to Ephesians. This same uh, word is picked up again by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you remember, the term he uses here is in Ephesians 5 verse 26 when he's talking about the marriage. And he's talking about Christ's marriage to the church. And he says in verse number 26, so that he might sanctify, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, Ephesians 5, 26. Uh, and then it says, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So this is what God is going to present. Uh, we're going to be presented as a body of believers unto God as holy and blameless. In other words, we are going to be presented to God as an acceptable offering to God with no defect and no blemish on our account. Again, in Colossians, it picks it up. It says again in chapter 1, verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. And then he adds something else beyond reproach that we're going to be offered up in the presence of God as something that is an offering acceptable to God. God cannot reject this offering. He cannot reject you in Christ Jesus. So you see what happened at the fall of man is that he became unholy, he became defiled by sin. He became blemished by sin. And so the fall was the works of the devil. That's attributed to the devil in Scripture. Jesus, remember, came to destroy the works of the devil, and the Apostle John brings that up in the Word of God, where he talks about two things in John 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says that, he says, little children, a, a term of endearment, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, all right? And then the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the work of the devil course and it goes on part of that work the devil destroys is this reigning sin over us he he shatters that when we come to Christ so when he's calling us to be holy and blameless he's calling us to do something we're enabled to do by his spirit so the undoing of the works of the devil are seen in the purpose God had for us in election that is to make us perfect outside and inside by the process of sanctification leading of course to glorification like he says in Romans 8 and these whom he predestined he also called he also justified he also glorified so the end result of our election is glorification now you can't break that chain link that that's one powerful strong chain that from the very calling to the uh to the gospel message to glorification you will get there as a believer it may be up and down along the way 
It may be all kinds of things going on. There, may, there will be trials. There will be tribulations. But all those things are for your sanctification. All those things, everything that happens in your life is for your sanctification, for you, God, setting you apart more and more unto himself. So holiness is the goal for which we are saved. In other words, God, who has chosen you to holiness, will make you holy. Now there is something to think about. Now if you do not, listen to me, if you do not even desire to be holy, you have no reason to believe that you are elect. Matter of fact, one way a person knows they're chosen doesn't happen right away. It doesn't happen immediately in their profession of faith. It happens along the road when you're, the word of God is challenged in your life or when a temptation of sin comes in your life that's overpowering, or some trial comes that knocks you off your rail, and you still don't want to give up Christ. You still want to keep going. You still love the Lord. You sometimes are laying there on the mat looking at the ceiling because you got knocked out so hard, and you say, Lord, I'm knocked out, but I'm not quitting. I'm not stopping. I'm going to continue to follow you. I'm going to continue to press on. I'm confused. I'm dazed. But I'm going to still follow you because I can follow you. You're the God who tells the truth. See, that happens to us. Now, it was uh, R. Kent Hughes who said this, that if some of your most cherished thoughts are hatreds, if you are determined not to forgive, you may not be a believer. If you are committed, a committed materialist who finds your greatest joys in self-indulgence, like clothing your body with lavish outfits or having all your waking thoughts devoted to houses and cars and clothing and the comforts of this world, you may not be a Christian. If you are a sensualist who is addicted to sensuality and pornography, if your mind is a 24-hour bordello and you think it's okay, you may very well not be a Christian, regardless of how many times you professed the Lord. Because the Lord's going to transform you in your mind. He's going to transform you where you think about God that every day becomes a day where God is center, central in your life. And the reason is because these behaviors do not reflect the character of the Father. His purpose for election is to make you like Christ, and these do not look like Christ. So here's the bottom line. Holiness is the particular mark of the elect. Election was intended to secure the believer's holiness of character. See, are you concerned about 
holiness? Are you concerned about putting God first? Are you concerned about growing in holiness? Are you concerned about that? Does that, does that? Is that even a concern in your life? I hope it is. Because that's part of it. God puts the concern in your heart to want to be set apart more and more to him. To know the old things you did and the old ways you thought are not pleasing to God. The old desires you had are not pleasing to the Lord. In simple terms, God's plan and purpose for us is to be like God. Now, quickly turn to 1 John chapter 3 and notice again a couple verses in verse 2 and 3 where the Apostle John picks up the same thing and look at how he addresses it to his audience. In 1 John 3 verse number 2, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Now that's how he starts it. You guys are the children of God. All right. Then he says this, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So while we're walking through this world, our eyes are fixed on Jesus who is perfect, who is the one that we ought to mimic and imitate in our life. And we fix our eyes upon the scripture that teaches us about Jesus. So what is God the Father preparing us for? Well, if you turn back to Ephesians, you'll notice back in the verse, it says that we, that we would be holy and blameless before him before him that he is preparing us to stand before him and of course that's going to be something that I already said for those who are elect and become holy and blameless they will be accepted by God and when we stand before God we desire to not to not disappoint him we desire to be pleasing to him we want to purify ourselves because we are chosen of God and because we are going to be with him and because we are going to be like him so you see the purpose of God for you and for me being chosen from the beginning is your sanctification and again first Thessalonians for this is the will of God what is it your sanctification same word for holy it's God's will to set you apart Thessalonians he picks up this subject that you abstain from sexual immorality right so for believers we should not be involved in that particular lifestyle that's only one lifestyle it, it mentions why because of this reason you have been set apart because it's God's will for you to be set apart. If you were doing that, stop it and start pleasing the Lord. Put those things to death. Don't let that sin reign over you as king anymore. Why? The reign of sin is already gone. That was crucified with Christ. We have the ability by God's spirit to actually reign over our own sin and say no to it as a king. See, we got to get that. Romans chapter 6. That's what Romans chapter 6 teaches. See, 
consider yourself dead to sin and to to unrighteousness. Consider yourself dead. Why? Because it has no attraction to dead men anymore. Sin, that kind of sin. And so therefore, the purpose of God is to sanctify you, to separate you unto God. The gospel of God's grace intends to change people who receive it. You don't remain the same when you come to Christ. It was David Paul Powelson in his little booklet on, the, on God's love. He says this, there's something wrong with you. From God's point of view, you not only need someone to be killed in your place in order to be forgiven, you need to be transformed in order to be fit to live well. And then he says this, God's purpose for his children is a comprehensive, lifelong rehabilitation, learning the holiness of God which, without which no one will see the Lord. All right? That's what it's about. Every day is about the holiness of God. Every day is about us being set apart. So, see, it's one, one of God's true children cannot say in truth, I can live as I'd like to. I am free to live as i like to. No. We're not free as Christians to live as we like to. We are free as Christians to live as we ought to in Christ Jesus, to please him. For the first time, we actually are free to please God. So to be in the presence of God is to be in the presence of one who there is no unholiness, there is no defilement, there is no sin, there is no darkness at all. That's why the Apostle John in, in 1 John says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That God is nothing but light. Now, that means this, the closer you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the brighter the light gets. And if the brighter the light gets, the more it will illuminate your sin and make it very, very clear to you. You won't be able to argue anymore in that respect because you'll have to say, Lord, I confess my sin to you because you just showed it to me. It's clear to me. And that's why in 1 John 1, 9, a few passages of Scripture later after this verse, he says, confess your sin, right, to God. And he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and all your unrighteousness. See, there it is. So we're walking in the light. We see our sin. We confess it. The Lord already took care of that sin on the cross, but the Lord wants us in our sanctifying process, in our being set apart to recognize that sin, identify that sin, call that sin what it is, and then confess it. God already knows about the sin. He's not, you're not telling him anything he, he doesn't already know. But he wants you, that's what a relationship is. A relationship is going and talking about what's going on in your life, and part of that is our sin. So for believers, the obstacle of sin is removed so we can appear before him. Again, without turning there, the Apostle John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him 
or known him. In other words, anybody who habitually practices sin day in and day out without confession and repentance, they don't even know Christ. They're just deceiving themselves. They're in self-deception, which is the worst kind of deception. When God gives you over to your own deception, that's the worst place to be because we are good at deceiving ourselves. We are good at putting ourselves in a better light than anybody else, and so therefore we really cannot see who we really are sometimes and what we're really doing. That's why the Word of God and His Spirit is so important in our life, and because walking in the light will illuminate those things that we don't even see. But God will make it known to us. It will surely be frightening for someone to appear before God, the God of Scripture, without being in Christ. It would be frightening if that were to happen. It was the psalmist, David, who asked the question in the Old Testament when he was writing the Psalms. And here's his question. Good question. His question was this. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Who? And this is what he says. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. And it goes on like that. He's saying, listen, the one who worships the true and living God also reflects it in their behavior. Because God does something in us. He changes us. He makes us new. We're not the person we used to be. So that is the case when it comes to sanctification. Now, I want you to go, to go back to Ephesians because I, I want, to, want you to see something in chapter 1 in verse number 4 because right at the end of the verse, if you notice in your Bibles, it says there in love. Is it there? Whatever translation you have, ESV, King James, New King James, NAS, it says there in love. Now, it's kind of like dangling there. Now, the reason for that is the translators didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and, and for a good reason, and I'll give you some of those reasons, because there's, in the, the original Greek, you don't know if it modifies what comes before it, or does it modify what comes after it? Now, the way I've been speaking, you may think, well, it modifies what came before it. But uh, let me look at that for a minute, because if it's connected to the end of verse number four and modifies what comes before it, it would read like this, that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. See that? That's how it would read. In other words, the emphasis would be us and our sanctification, and it would be that our holiness should be characterized by love. Now, that's a great possibility. That's a possibility. Some have gone that way. If you're reading commentaries and people who translate, they, 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 many of them have gone that way. And so that would mean that part of the undoing of the works of Satan is that the Christian is now a lover of God. Is that not true? A Christian is now a lover of God. They, they were opposite of that before. They, they were opposed to God. They were haters of God. But now in Christ, they are lovers of God. They, are, they love holiness. 
They love God's word. They delight to live the Christian life and they, they wanna cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. They wanna do that. And so, of course, if you have a King James uh, or a New King James, it would translate it that way. It also may modify what comes after it. And the emphasis there would be God the Father. In other words, salvation starts with the love of God. And, of course, according to our passage, love is the reason for God's predestination. So that means this, it would read this way. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, which translation are you going to pick? No, it doesn't really change anything in the context, whatever you choose. The thing is, is that sometimes linguistically it's not easy when you look at a text which way to go with it. Now, saying that, yes, the Father has chosen us as his children. There's a next great blessing that comes flowing to us from our Heavenly Father and he wants his children to know it. And what is that? In verse number five, of course, I'll, I'll kind of let you know my choice in a second. In verse number five, it says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, the Father not only has chosen us, but he has adopted. He's adopted us. Those who believe in his son are predestined to adoption. This word predestined means to decide beforehand, to mark out beforehand. Actually, the root word is horizon. We get the word horizon from. Horizon is a distinct mark looking forward. Uh, if you're on a ship or a, on a boat, you can see there's a distinct mark between the sky and the water. That's usually called where the sky and the water meet. That's the horizon. I think the horizon's usually about seven miles away or something like that. But there's this distinct mark. Here, God makes a distinct mark beforehand. In other words, to place God's decision to mark off a people for himself chronologically before the world began. So I believe what suits this passage is the second interpretation. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That's the translation I would take. Matter of fact, if you're holding a NAS, an NIV, uh, NAB, uh, an NLT, they all translate it that way. All the modern translations, because of more manuscript evidence from the first and second century, translate it that way. I think that's the translation I would go with because it goes with the passage of Scripture focused on the Father. And the Father didn't just predestine us out of some theoretical, intellectual framework. He predestined us in love. It was love that motivated God to choose people. So, see, that means God is relational. God is the one who pursues us. He's the one who goes after us. 
So it is saying that God the Father adopts believers as sons. Think about that for a minute. I heard of a story of a, a little boy who was adopted and he was having a conversation with his mom one day and his mom said, the boy says, mom, why do you think my hair's dark? And, and, and the mom said to him, well, because your father's hair is dark. And the boy says to his mother, but mom, I'm adopted. And she says, oh, I always forget that. And the little boy said, I always loved when my mother said that because she always considered me part of her family. She always considered me not someone who was adopted, but someone who was part of them. And she it always thrilled me when she said that. That's what it's saying here about us. It's saying that God adopts us. Who are we? Were born illegitimate children. In fact, we were born children of the devil. God, the Lord Jesus, even says to the the people who thought they were part of Abraham, your father's the devil because he's the one you look like and listen to. That means we were strangers to God. We were separated from Christ. We were in Adam, slaves of sin, unworthy of the love of God. And God the Father sent Christ. And only when redemption has been accomplished is sonship possible. Only then is it possible. Now, flip quickly back to Galatians, the book right before Ephesians, and look at Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So we are adopted into God's family and consider by God his own children. The idea of adoption, it was not a Hebrew idea. It was not a, an idea in the mind of those in Israel because they, they were God's people that they thought. Adoption was a Roman idea. It was a Greek idea in the sense that it was borrowed from Roman law. According to Roman law, uh, this provision was one, uh, according to this provision, one who was a stranger in blood, even a slave, could become a member of the family into which he was adopted and had all the rights and privileges which would have been his if he had been born uh, a son by birth. So that was in their mind. In this case, the father adopts us into the family of God with all the rights and privileges. In fact, when we are adopted into God's family, two things change significantly. The first thing that changes and what's brought about by our adoption is, number one, a change in relationship happens. A change in relationship for the Christian. What do I mean by that? We sang about it this morning. God becomes our Father. All right, look again at, back at Galatians chapter 4, verse number 6. 
It says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. All right, now, we can call the Father in the same way Jesus called the Father, is what it's saying. And of course, this is an Aramaic word here, and it simply means, Gabe said it this morning, Daddy. Now, is there any nicer word that can come from the heart of a child than to say the word daddy. It's got something to it, doesn't it? But to say the word daddy from someone who was adopted has got even more meaning. Because they, they didn't really belong. They weren't born into that family. They have really no connection to that family. And so... Romans again picks it up for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out there's a cry that comes and the cry is Abba Father Daddy I am the son of God in the sense that I can call my father Daddy just as Jesus called his father Daddy so God is our Father to whom we pray, to the one who forgives our sins, and of course the one who lovingly cares for all our needs. And if you go through the New Testament, you'll find it all there. So we have a change in relationship. I actually am related to the Father because of Christ. Now, there's another change that takes place. There's a change in standing some have called it a legal change of status. Usually when someone is adopted, they have to draw up legal papers to say, listen, this person now belongs to this family. And so God becomes our friend in this particular change. We are no longer slaves, but a son, a friend. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says this to his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 15. This is what he says to them. Listen, he says, No longer do I call you slaves. For a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain and so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I may give it to you. So the change, of course, in relationship is also a change in standing. I'm not a slave. I am not an enemy of God anymore. I am actually those adopted to his family are friends of God. That's another word that is maybe too much abused, but daddy and friends together. They just show this love that comes from the father about what he did. So adoption as God's children is ours only through Jesus Christ. Adoption as God's children means we share in Jesus Christ's divine 
divine sonship and also adoption as God's children means we are heirs of God because Jesus is God's heir. Again, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here it is, that God adopts us. But how does he adopt us? Look at verse number 5, back in Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, He adopts us. There's a character, an attitude that goes with that adoption according to the kind intention of his will. So if you, if you look back here at our text, that all this change that is brought about through Jesus Christ is by the kind intention of his will. It's by the kindness of God that we're chosen, that we're adopted, that we're brought into to God's family. And so God took pleasure in his primordial decision to adopt believers as his children and he did this so that they may praise him for the magnificence of his grace that's what God has done and that's why the last thing he mentions as far as what the father has done for us is found in verse number six and it says the father has accepted us now the king James says to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In the New American Standard, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I use the title of accepted because again, we are now not only an acceptable sacrifice, but we're acceptable children that we're children that are holy and blameless before God, and so therefore that's the kind of person that can come into the presence of God. That's the kind of person who has no obstacles into God's presence whatsoever. In fact, if you notice the end of verse number six, he says he bestowed it upon us in the beloved. Who's he talking about there? The Father's talking about Christ himself. It was this very word that the Father used in, at Jesus' baptism where he says, Behold, a voice out of heaven said this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am, what? Well pleased. And he's saying here to us, He has freely bestowed upon us by His grace the same blessing that is bestowed upon Christ Himself. We're included in it. So we are chosen and we are beloved people from God's perspective. So therefore, by God's act of free grace that he has lavished upon believers should prompt us to praise him. Because he says there, what's the end of election and adoption and being accepted? That the people that God's chosen will praise him. That it will get into their heart and move their will and actually loosen up their tongues so they would praise him. So they would praise him with their mouth, that they would praise him with their lifestyle, that they would praise him in their thoughts, that they would praise him in their behavior, that they would be prompted by understanding what the Father has done to praise God. So the goal 
of adoptive sonship, the adoptive sonship of believers is a relationship with God similar to that of Jesus' own family relationship with God the Father. Do I understand that? No. All that I know is the Scripture says it. And if this doesn't encourage you, if this doesn't motivate you to praise God, if this doesn't motivate you to know who you are in Christ and how much boldness that gives you to live in a world like we live in and to shoot for the goal that God has for us because he will produce holiness in your life, then uh, there's nothing else that can motivate you as far as this is concerned. So the blessing that comes from the Father is that the Father has chosen you. If you are a believer, he has adopted you. If you are a believer, he has accepted you. As a believer, he's only done this in and through Christ alone. So if you want to be in the family of God, turn to Christ. Call upon him as your own Lord and Savior. If you want to be in the family of God. If you're in the family of God, that you may have to go back and look at your life and honestly evaluate where you're at and begin to each day give yourself over to God's control, to the spirit of God's control. And so the Lord, through his word, through his spirit, will sanctify you and make you blameless before him. Because that's where it's all heading. It's heading for the presence of God. Christians know this. Again, kind of a family secret. But when you know these things, believe me, these are the very things that keep you going. These are the very things that are the fire uh, in your bones to just live for God. These are the kind of things that say no to the flesh, that say no to the world, that say no to the powerful temptations of Satan. These are the, these are the truths that keep you standing and keep you firm. Even when others around you don't believe them, don't see what you see, don't know what you know, it keeps you standing. And it keeps you standing praising God. It keeps you standing with joy intact. It keeps you there. That's what these things do. They keep you there. And I just looked at the blessing that comes from the Father. The next time, we're going to start seeing the blessings that come from the Son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the awesomeness of the Word of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for the blessings that you give to us. Lord, if it wasn't there in this epistle, I wouldn't even know it. There's nowhere else we can get these things, these truths, unless we go to your Word. So I pray, Father, today that you would take the truth that was dispelled this morning and I pray that you would shower it upon us, that you would strengthen us with it and make us what you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, that these things proceed and come from the love of the Father and the kind intention of his will. Lord, just with that fact... We want to humble ourselves before your mighty hand, and we want to praise you now. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.